These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Through the Window. It really hasn't been all of that long since you've last heard the two of us speaking. I'm going to try and get this out at the usual time this week. We're recording a little bit late, but it feels like it's been even longer for me and Toby sitting down and discussing something, just in Mm -hmm. terms of like the extended period that we took in between recording a new thing, which is part of the reason why we had to take a little bit of a hiatus is just as well because on the day that I was originally planning to record with Toby, I was sick and I was neither in a headspace nor in a vocally pleasing space for me to actually be able to record with him. So Mm -hmm. I guess it all ended up working out Mm -hmm. and I don't necessarily know how to feel about like, oh yes, the earth is healing because I'm getting colds again. Yay? (laughs) progress <laughs> yeah exactly i don't even know honestly but here we are back again talking about yes Steve who's back back again yeah okay i guess that's going to be an ongoing thing now it's just like what music are we going to spontaneously break out into this time it will probably be from the late 90s yeah exactly that's kind of where our heads both are i have no idea what's even popular in music recently i'm completely out of touch or at least i'm a little bit in touch because i watch todd in the shadows and the rap critic and a couple other people online that you know tell me what thing they're listening to right now or what artist is really big but in terms of like developing new musical favorites or songs that i like i don't listen to the radio anymore so i don't know what's playing on the radio so radio we've got podcasts it's true. Actually, the only thing I listen to on a regular basis is podcasts and not music. Wow. Okay. A couple minutes in and my throat's already dry. Oh, I shall dub in and say it has been a while, but uh, it's given us time to get our notes together. And in some places, our notes got quite long in the tooth, which is impressive because I saw some of Greg's notes and he had some thoughts some concise thoughts and i said there's only so much of that we can really have in one of these so i decided to go long and (laughs) really into essay level material of something like 500 words on one point which you'll get to enjoy so here we are back in the saddle back into the steam-powered motorized transportation and we get to come back to the early portion of this road trip we are well past the point where we're in the preparation stages and now we're here we're on the road and there's gonna be drug trips uh mournful discoveries considerations of what lies beyond and some of it will be spoilery not a lot so if you're just keeping up with where we're at at this point you'll be in plenty of fine water. So 
let's crack on because I realise that I am very under-practiced at leading these things. But <laughs> I like to give my co-host a bit of a chance to rest his throat every now and then. Take it away, Greg. Yes. As Toby has said, we are getting into part two, literally titled On the Road. This is the day-to-day experience of Team Steam discovering what's out there. Not boldly going where no one has gone before, but, you know, at the very least, boldly rediscovering what's out there, what good things, what bad things, and all that sort of uh, jazz. We're going to be discussing chapters 14, 15, and 16 over the next couple of episodes. And the thing that I found difficult as I was starting to put together the outline for chapter 14 is that as much as I enjoyed the chapter, it didn't really feel like there was a whole lot of new stuff to dig into or analyze in terms of talking points for me and Toby, which is why I told him if he could think of anything else to contribute to Go Buck Wild, and apparently he did. Much of the weight of this chapter is centered around establishing a new normal. And to me, it felt like that meant that the narrative was focused on a lot of descriptive detail, basically trying to set the scene in a way that in cinema they would do with visuals and a lot of nonverbal acting and everything like that. I described it as primarily cinematic. If the story was visual rather than completely narrated, then there are many ways that they could get across how people feel or what the experience is like to travel in Steamheart without having people say, I felt this way, or it smelled like this. Sometimes there are parts of a piece of media that you enjoy, but can't necessarily say anything about them other than this worked very well to put me in the mental space of the people experiencing this. When I got Toby's outline notes prior to our show, an early comment was that he took issue with my use of the word cinematic. And this actually intrigued me, because Toby and I don't often disagree that much on story elements. I also kind of love it when that happens, because then it helps make it feel more like a real collaboration, old-school Siskel and Ebert style. And I did, of course, have thoughts about his response, but I'm going to let him elaborate on his thoughts first. Before I get into any of my planned material, something I wanted to say in response, because clearly I didn't have enough to say. I think it's also completely fine for there to be parts of this that are connective tissue, Mm, if that makes mm. sense, because... Not every moment in a story is the biggest moment of that story. You have to have the things that get you from point A to point B. And sometimes it's not intended to have as much deliberation on mm. from either the story itself or from us responding to it and viewing and thinking about it. It's okay for it to just be something that occupies us until we get to the next big moment for us. I certainly don't mean to, when I go into a lot of scrutiny on what we have here, to kind of go against your takeaway from this, which I think is absolutely valid. There's plenty of that, especially in the story, as long as Steamheart. In terms of what you were mentioning about me responding to your use of the word cinematic, I think I would 
query whether this set of descriptive text, what it's accomplishing is best described as cinematic, because, you know, you can certainly envision the various isolated details Abigail relays to us being threaded together in a visual montage. The purpose of this segment is to provide an approximation of what recurring circumstances start to become familiar in this new norm, and you could juxtapose them together through film editing to solidify that impression, most likely using a piece of music that puts all of these mobile, domestic, slash daily routine scenarios under the same umbrella. A close example I could use as a comparison is in one of the episodes of Telltale's Borderlands, the mm. Tales from the Borderlands, the bit where you see the group driving across and it's in some sort of like mobile home. The opening credits has a montage which is meant to sell a span of time having passed and kind of give you a sense of the day to day and what some of the characters got up to. You could absolutely compare that to this. It's good that you brought that up because it's been a while since I've played that game. But the second you mentioned it, I'm like picturing the visuals of how we see people shifting about the cabin or even the two robots sitting on top of it and how they move from place to place as it turns from day mm. to night to day again. It's that kind of uh, nonverbal storytelling that I would mm. imagine be used watching Steamheart travel across Virginia. Alex does, of course, use both background noises from tabletop audio and music from Kevin McLeod to help set scene and mood in the audio drama. It's obviously just a strength of a visual medium that it can do many things without using words. For those of you that have not played Tales from the Borderlands, well, first of all, I think it's one of the best things put out by Telltale, but I am including a YouTube link in the show notes so that people can see what Toby and I just talked about. It would fit both the point of the story and the characters really well to tell the story in that way. Mm. But while imagining the filmic possibilities is a practice that I often employ myself and generally heartily encourage just because, you know, all of us here care and are invested a lot in film as a medium... In this instance, I do feel that it draws focus away from the literary sensibilities of what the narration is able to accomplish with the language. That's kind of like my key well, actually, against mm. your use of the word cinematic, while okay. still understanding where you're coming from in terms of what that word elicits and how this scene could be conveyed in that way. You, you said you had a word that you would reconsider using in its place. So before I get into some of the literary narration styles here, I wanted to give you a chance to intercede. Yeah, to rephrase what this chapter feels like, I want to use the word immersive. Yeah, I can see that. James's words and Abigail's words, their journal entries are the primary focus of this chapter, telling us a lot about events that happen choices that they make, things that they experience over the course of just being in Steamheart without any major conversations happening, or at the very least, ones that we actually see happening. Rather, they are alluded to, with a few specific points coming up here and there, in terms of Alex once more telling us, hey, this is a fact plucked from previous books in the series, this might become relevant again, so we're going to remind you of it. But mm. most of it is describing a feeling. Mm. 
I think I've come to very similar conclusions uh, later on in my notes. So I think I agree with you on that. That immersive captures the feeling of what you're talking about, but also the scene itself. Some of the examples I think of how the narration, whether in the audio drama or in the book, is able to put us in this place through the written word is things like James describing the sensory qualities of Steamheart as specifically smelling like brass and leather, which invites us to consider what the vehicle actually feels like beyond the tactile senses of touch or sight that usually are the things that get emphasised in cinema or sound. Smell and taste is something that is quite difficult to convey through mm. a very visual and audio-focused medium-like film. We know we haven't figured out smell-o-vision yet. I, I think we can probably give that one a miss. Like, <laughs> Do we need to bring out the Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park? You, you like got so preoccupied about whether or not you could, you didn't think to stop to think if you should. Like, Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily have needed to watch Jurassic Park and then when Ian Malcolm comments, well, that's a big pile of shit. I don't need to smell <laughs> a big pile of shit. Mm. We, we believe him when he says it. We don't need yes. that confirmed in any way. Mm. Even then, you get to hear Abigail call up the wear of being inside something that pounds away at you with unceasing rhythm. Mine's out of the gutter, please. Just oh, no, the... okay, now hold on a second here. <laughs> You're talking about leather. And now you're talking about just being in Steamheart and hearing those pistons just pounding it. We, we, we've got pounding kids it. here, I assume. Stop. <laughs> Stop. Um. I mean, okay, technically we have, I'm sure Willow is listening to this. I'm, someone somewhere out there has read their kid uh, a New Century book, and they may be coming to us and looking to us as bastions of mature family gut literary discussion so you know i won't fucking tolerate any of that bullshit you Getting do realize on... there's going to be sex scenes we're going to be having to talk about a few chapters down the road yeah we probably have sailed the boat <laughs> like the boat has sailed on this particular avenue of classification for our podcast sod it all right but no like in all seriousness that feeling it's not just about seeing steamheart drive down the road in a mm -hmm. visual quality it's about saying what is it that you would be experiencing if you were inside and it's just the feeling that your bones are shaking inside you mm. just from doing nothing just sitting still there's no way you would get away from it the fluidity with which we weave between where members of the team best like to spend their time or how they would respond to the daily cycle between day and night. All of it is relayed in a span of just a few words contained within individual sentences. We often place cinema ahead of literature when it comes to efficiency of communication of detail. You know, that old adage, a picture can paint a thousand words. But sometimes when compared to a sequence of shots that have to be presented one by one in turn, the right turn of phrase, the right combination of eloquent words can relay a span of time or multiple moments or just a whole cavalcade of thoughts and feelings and i think that sometimes what we hear here is actually accomplishing a lot of moments a lot of feelings in the span of saying a couple of words without you having to show it there's mm -hmm. there's ways to efficiently convey this like in either medium so i don't think 
I would necessarily say, oh, this does this better than the other. It's just their own unique approaches to it. Mm. Medium is the message. The medium is the message is always the best thing to fall back to. Speaking of word choice, we also get instances of specific word invocations being an indication of our characters drawing influence from newfound connections in this book, such as Abigail utilizing Kaufman's kvetching. (laughs) You know, it's fun. It accomplishes that continual overlap of characters, which this crossover celebration of a narrative is all about. And it does so with the spoken word choice, which is what literature and especially audio drama adaptations of literature is all about. Having that brought up, we're going to be talking a little bit more, as we have been since the beginning, about the significance of diversity in media. Mm -hmm. But in this particular case, when you're talking about word choice, the thing that comes to mind is the unusual importance that can come with learning somebody else's language Mm. maybe not necessarily from a learning to speak it necessarily that's a whole other thing we've read tiger's eye we get the importance yeah yeah exactly the significance here is that it helps to see something from somebody else's perspective Mm. not simply from a individual standpoint but like these are the things that this culture finds important or significant, whether Mm -hmm. it's on a serious level or on a humorous level. The use of the word kvetch, for example, may seem like it's simply a different way to say complain or whine. But context is everything, not just in the circumstance of when the word is used, but also in the case of why the word was invented. A direct translation of kvetch in Yiddish actually means to squeeze or press, and revealing the origin of said word conveys nuance, that kvetching is complaining due to being under pressure. One of my favorite words has always been schadenfreude, a German compound word that conveys taking pleasure in the misfortune of others. Not because I especially enjoy doing so, There are people whose misfortune I admit I would take some satisfaction in, but my enjoyment of the word primarily comes from the fact that having a word that encapsulates a complex idea often helps us make these ideas more real. One of the things they talk about when you're in the process of learning a new language, you know that you've acquired a certain level of mastery of it if you're able to think in that language, Mm. never mind Mm. speaking it. That, of course, just brings to mind some of the stuff that we've discussed before about how the idea of Miguel learning to communicate with Hrau, it was a paradigm shift for him, and it's part of the reason why he tends to think and experience more like she does Mm. than the world he originally, the world and the culture he originally came from even though he absolutely taps back into that um, throughout, you know, trying to explain things to Harau or relating it back to those early experiences of his grandmother and stuff like that. It's something that you use to show that there is a cross-pollination of (laughs) ideas and that's 
exactly what this book should be about, particularly mm. in a series that has been espousing communication and communication between different worlds. We often say that in a literal sense, but the whole point is that the worlds are representative of the different worlds that exist within the reality that we live in. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be literally going through a wind door to another world in order to meet someone who has lived a different life to you, who has thought about their life differently to how you think about yours. So it's cool to see Abigail experiencing that without having to step through a window yet and it just makes us think of how much more people will grow exactly in point of fact your highlighting of abigail enjoying kaufman's specific word fetching it also makes me think of a comment that i assigned to alex online very recently in terms of cross-pollination of words and the cross-pollination of the ideas that come with them, it's difficult to talk about experiences if the experiences are things that we don't have words for yet. Mm -hmm. So expanding your dialogue to expand the possibilities of communication, mm -hmm. that's very important in terms of developing empathy and in terms of overall growth to... Mm -hmm become more insightful to better interact with our world, to better explain it to other people. That's happened over time through just the development of language in general, in terms of how much English itself is borrowed from the myriad cultures that have contributed to it. But the way I was talking about it was specifically relating to back in time plus space, and how it shared a few things with the rival, the characters experiencing things that there are no words to describe because they're so far outside the experiences of the average person. Even as someone that has always worked hard to expand my empathy, to check my own privilege, and to listen to the voices of those that had different life experiences than mine, I didn't completely grok the trans experience until someone introduced me to words like gender dysphoria or dysmorphia. Looking up these words was critical to understanding even the basics, so that I could begin to understand what it was like for someone that had to live with these things as a part of their daily life. In contact, when you hear that line of just no words they should have sent a poet. Mm -hmm. that, that sentence, that idea there is touching on the same thing, where people are experiencing things that we don't have the words, the means of communication, and it, we need to think poetically. We need to think of ways to tap into or just find something to express that which we have not collectively or individually been able to tap into in our human experience. Mm. Literature also affords us extra details that come across as much less laboured than they would in a medium as selective with what it includes as film can be. James telling us about incidents of encountering resistance that, you know, were nevertheless uneventful and subsequently confiding his own concerns to us about all of this would require at least a decent amount of choreographed effort to communicate that same action in film with the same tone of being manageable and relatively unremarkable for now. These incidents 
are not really noteworthy. And it would possibly require a full scene or two to relay all of it. But here we get to cover it all with someone just narrating it in a few brief sentences and doing so with the right tone of measured consideration and concern. Similarly, we may not be able to cover Abigail and Annie informing each other of their respective pasts in film without a passing comment that risks coming across as either rushed or repetitive. But in literature, we're more forgiving about hearing characters go over what we've spent some screen time on already. And it affords us the opportunity to see how Abigail feels about what we, the audience, went over with Annie a few chapters ago. We have space and time for narrated introspection and elaboration, especially after the eruptive crest we just had in the story with Steamheart's departure. To summarise, while the cinematic montage version of this series of visuals would present and stage everything going on in this chapter, what we get here in the subjective recounting of these memories through narration is an emphasis on how these aspects of the journey are experienced by the characters themselves, which circles back to how you described it as immersive. Mm. I think my point in bringing up how I felt about this chapter at the start, and therefore needed some of your feedback in order to understand better how to explain how I was feeling, Mm. was that... As a result of the tableau that these journal entries are trying to provide for us, it's very literally tell-don't-show, which obviously, because this is not a visual medium, is required. They have to tell us in words because they can't show us. But I think the reason why I came to the conclusion that I didn't necessarily have a whole lot to say about the events that Abigail and James describe is that I'm basically comparing it to a lot of the talking points we've had, not just up till now in Steamheart, but in terms of the entire rest of the New Century oeuvre. Much of the important things that this chapter has to tell us is very literally spelled out. Mm. We already know from previous conversations that Abigail is having a claustrophobic response to Steamheart. And if there was a visual medium, instead of Abigail saying, I ended up wanting to spend as much time outside as possible, we could see that she hesitates on getting back into Steamheart. Or we could see her camping out in the stars with Annie by her side and everything like that. There just isn't a whole lot of subtext for us to Mm. delve into. It's all Mm. text. And that's why I was struggling to come up with conversational points for this chapter. That's not a downside necessarily. It just means that unlike a lot of the stuff that we previously got into, where I was being like, hey, Abigail chose to say this. Harry chose to say that. What can we infer from it? Here, Mm. there isn't a whole lot of inferring to be done. It's the descriptive text rather than like a conversation being had or little moments that are unspoken that we can expand upon. I think there's a lot of books or stories where we do need that descriptive text just to kind of build the scene for us and then we can let it play out once we have that framework in our head. 
it's not like looking at a backdrop in an animated production where you can see a lot of the unspoken detail. The detail mm. is spoken, and that's just what the medium is. And we're happy for it, and it enhances the story. It's just our work is kind of done. Like We don't need to point it out and do that middle process of drawing the meaning out because it's all there. Mm-hmm. The thing that I really liked that you started to talk about in some of these notes that we're just coming to now is relating the experience of Steamheart to the experience of Mass Effect. Mm -hmm. And that the steam-powered vehicle, you know, obviously the actual creation of it was inspired by the Firefly starship, Serenity, Mm. from the TV show made by the now-problematic Joss Whedon. But <laughs> and the less said about that, the better. You were relating how conversation of random encounters and mm-hmm. the personal conversations between Butler and Abby make us feel. I've been actually replaying what is called Mass Effect Legendary Edition. I took a big break sometime around the middle of Mass Effect 2. But mm-hmm. I recently just dove myself right back into it, finished Mass Effect 2, went on to Mass Effect 3, and was remembering just why I loved these characters as much as I did. I, I played Mass Effect 2 so many times oh, when it yeah. first came out. But in retrospect, I would actually played Mass Effect 1 much less. I didn't play it when it first came out. I think I specifically got it because I'd heard Mass Effect 2 was really good, and I was like, well, okay, I need to go back and experience this from the beginning. Mass Effect 1 is, of course, a much less tightly constructed experience, so it takes a little bit of a while to actually get through in order to get to some of the really meaty bits of the story. Mass Effect 2 is made much more tightly wound, where the individual character moments between our heroic Commander Shepard and all of the various people that they encounter that they recruit for their mission and everything like that. It's all very much focused on that. And now I'm finally getting back to Mass Effect 3, which is the culmination of all of those interactions, calling back to some of those early missions and humorous moments and serious moments. There is a strong correlation between that and Mm. the way some of these things have been feeling as we're putting together all of the characters from Secret Rooms and Arlington and Tiger's Eye eventually and letting everybody interact with each other finally. Yeah, in essence, what I take away from this chapter is the material that would constitute the parts of Steamheart that if it were not even Mass Effect, but if it was an open-world game or an RPG would act as the in-between side missions, the activities and optional crew conversations. We hear about times they venture into town and foster good faith among the different communities they meet along the road. We hear tell of random encounters we and how they're, you know, they're not too much of a problem. We find out what spots party members tend to be found in on the Normandy. I mean, uh, Steamheart. Uh, <laughs> If you spoke with Harry, I'm sure she would say, can it wait for a minute? I'm uh, in the middle of some calibrations. 
Uh, okay, yeah, you're absolutely right. That is the person we would make that joke with. You're yes. And you have Butler and Abby catching the trail of a wild monster that they choose to pursue, even if it has nothing to do with our main task. We even see what the benefits are for completing that mission. The locals are a fraction less hostile and they permit them to camp overnight, which... Yeah, that's almost a bit of a telltale moment there. Be like, the Mm. the locals will remember that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We even see Annie and Abby bring up that mysterious thread from phase one of New Century, Old Ned or Malloy. And when Abigail proposes investigating it when they have the time, I can't help but think of like a new entry being added to the side quest list. Though it is worth noting that Abigail's idea is to take a couple of horses to pursue this rather than make use of Steamheart, which further solidifies her general discomfort in the machine and her sentiments that rather than being freed in this vehicle, she feels confined in it. That's actually a really good pull right there. If we hadn't been already told about how Abby feels about this, that would be a way of subtly indicating just how much of a problem that she's having with that. Because we can imagine Abigail and Frank having this conversation and mm. they're like, we should we should find this rabbit animal. And Abigail could like look over at Steamheart and sort of shudder a little bit and be like, how about we take some horses and go find this thing? <laughs> I mean, that's it really, isn't it? Because I can't really imagine Harry thinking of ever using anything but Steamheart to travel mm. anywhere. Like she has to sort of like run some errands in town and just drives up in Steamheart and doesn't really think anything of it. That's but her baby. She has to take care of it. She can't leave it alone. Right. But conversely, I think for Abby, she's sort of counting the minutes when she can use something that she doesn't feel just generally jittery, like literally jittering inside mm-hmm. this thing. The point is, Steamheart is striving to crack the setting of the reunified states wide open. It's a road trip epic, and spending time to populate its chapters with little self-contained extras that are nevertheless appealing and compelling, and not just main events that advance the central plot, it goes a long way to make this world and this story feel bigger. One last thought before we move on. And once more, your invoking of Mass Effect works really well here, especially since the experience is fresh in my mind. The whole conversation between Abigail and Frank as she's just like, you know, poking a little bit and trying to learn more about him. That totally feels like some of the conversations that Shepard and Garrus have had. Mm. I mean, other characters as well, but just in terms of like, the implicit closeness between Frank and Abigail as being fellow soldiers and people that have worked together before, but Abigail still wanting to learn more about this friendly but sometimes closed-off individual that Mm. she's working with. It has that sort of feel to it, especially as we see Frank actually get ruffled for one of the few points at which we've seen him in the books so far, like usually he tends to be the guy that gets other people to open up. He's the guy that seems to be unflappable while other people are dealing with their own internal stuff. He's the one that brings Thomas back to reality on more than one occasion in Arlington. And for the first time, 
somebody else is actually getting under his skin. So that's an interesting detail there. That's something that's worth discussing. And mm. part of the only reason, again, why I didn't decide to delve more into this when I was working on the outline is primarily, well, first of all, I didn't necessarily think about it as much at the time, that this is not out of character moment for Frank, but like something different than we have experienced from him before. Mm but that mm. it's primarily highlighting some of the stuff we'd already talked about in terms of Frank feeling more complete as a result of having Annie in his life. Mm. And this is something that we already knew, but Abigail is learning about now. And she has a, just has a different way of going about probing about the depths of which Frank feels this way about mm. his marriage. Also, we didn't know before in Arlington about what actually happened with his wife. That's new information that we have now as a result right. of the Steamheart novel. So it helps us weave a, a greater tapestry mm. about what's the feelings that are involved here. And Abigail is just like, I'm going to poke at this until mm. you tell me more. Yeah. Something we'll be getting into in a sec with Abigail is that she is capable of confronting certain hard truths as much as between her and james she feels like the more personable people person mm -hmm. she's nevertheless got moments where she can whether it's awkwardly putting her foot in her mouth like when she first meets the arlingtons or here where she will ask certain questions which have this most people would just not pry mm -hmm. she can sometimes be a bit out of step with what people would expect or feel comfortable with. Abigail does bring up some very personal details and asks quite searching questions of Frank, and they're important questions worth considering, but if I'm honest, it's a moment that I feel out of sync with Abigail on. I don't think she's mm. acting out of character, I just feel out of sync with her, where usually she's a character who, we were talking about this very recently, that Abigail's becoming more and more like a real lead in New Century and in this book. But here, I personally find myself just kind of like, you know, questioning like her tact on this. And I do think she oversteps here. That's something she acknowledges herself, even though she doesn't necessarily drop the questions, which, you know, it makes me think of her insistence that we also remarked on about how she would continue to collect signatures for the handbook after others raise objections to it. There's somewhat of a defiant streak to her, where just because someone raises the idea that maybe you shouldn't continue on this, without her being obnoxious about it, or excessively obnoxious past the point where we can continue to like her, she will sort of question, you know, these are important things to consider. Like, you know, why don't we ask these questions? In a way, this moment with Frank is an echoing back of Abby questioning her father on his reasons for joining the Confederate Army. Say what you will about the appropriateness of her behavior from time to time. Her outspokenness is a well-defined aspect of her character by now. Frank's response, by contrast, is fascinating because, as you say, we aren't used to seeing Frank be kind of thrown off by situations. We've seen him 
encounter some really stressful moments and be able to respond accordingly. One of the few other moments we've seen him be throw off is also related to his first wife and his family that he lost with Agent Lee. There's definitely something about the loss of his family that rattles him. And something that I hadn't really considered until just now is this chapter ends with some really effective, tense undercurrent music. It doesn't erupt, it just has this feeling mm. of unease. And it feels fitting because they encountered the locals who <laughs> established that they had been spying on them and say, you can stay for the night and then you better go in the morning. And as they leave, they didn't turn their back on each other for a moment, which just shows it's a great unspoken tension and the music fits that. But if I'm being honest, I think that that music is appropriate for this part of the chapter because we also feel uneasy that Frank was kind of losing control and getting a bit irate with Abigail, especially because we know what he's been tasked with, which is to keep an eye on Abigail and James. And even though James is his charge, it I think is implicit that both Annie and Butler have jurisdiction over like the pair of them so if he's alone with abigail his charge essentially shifts to her yeah. so him getting a bit kind of losing control and ticked off with her there's that extra undercurrent and we don't think that something really dramatic is going to happen here it just feels sort of like hmm i was a bit different and i don't know how to feel about that when you're discussing how the tenor of the music plays with both Frank's current mental state and then it transitions when we think there might be a confrontation between our heroes and the locals. Mm -hmm. It makes me think about that moment all the way back in Let Them Go, where the whistling of the tea kettle is itself diegetic sound that like they're using it in order to keep the attention of the outside monster. But then even as we transition to a different scene in a different part of the setting, that the non-diegetic music ramps up so that it matches that same eerie sound that the tea kettle was providing during that very tense moment at the end of the chapter. It's a great bit of audio accompaniment to the story, mm -hmm. which I think the audio drama uh, brings with it. Well, that's the thing, is that if there is one strength, well, I mean, there's many strengths, but one thing that allows the audio drama to make its mark above and beyond the novel itself is the way the music and the sound editing in general can help contribute to that sense of immersion we were talking about. It's mm. easier for us to feel ourselves in the moment. The more ways that the story has to communicate itself to us, the easier it is for us to achieve emotional connection 
to what's going on, to not simply be the audience hearing the story being told to us, but to feel like we ourselves are in that moment with them. Mm. Mm-hmm. We, we're placed right alongside them on that. Yeah, exactly. One last thought that I had in regards to some of the stuff we were already talking about, about mm-hmm. Abby being a very active participant in everything that's going on, not simply being a narrator of this new normal that's being described, but also going out of her way to interact with everybody, unlike, you know, Raven's off by himself, doing his own thing, and being the the storyteller, the stenographer. But Abigail, unlike James, isn't good at being internal. She's Mm. external, and so therefore she's talking with Annie. She's talking with Frank, suggesting we need to go out and do something about this rabid animal. And as a result of being in her headspace a lot, it means that midway through this episode, we're suddenly experiencing a contrast between what's going on right now in comparison to the feeling that we had at the end of the launch day chapter, where she is all of a sudden not feeling as optimistic about what happens next now that we've established this new normal of we're traveling, this is what we're experiencing, and she's already in an uncomfortable mindset because of having to be in Steamheart as this is going on. She's musing midway through the episode about Raven being right about this being the final days of humanity. It makes this entire chapter feel like it's plucked out of some other post-apocalyptic story like Fury Road or The Last of Us. Part of me just like can very easily imagine Sharon's voice through the drawl that she gives Abigail asking of Raven, we're not going to make it. People, I mean. And in return, Alex voicing through Raven's drawl, it's in humanity's nature to destroy itself. (laughs) Mm. I mean, Abigail reaching a somber but not necessarily despairing conclusion and finding a serene contentment in the face of human entropy is... The emotionally nuanced conclusion I'm growing to expect from her, the more time we spend with her and the more we see her see, well, more of the world beyond Mm. Weirwood and what she saw in secret rooms. The points with which we've seen her conflict with Thomas up till now almost suggest that she represents the alternative to what he embodies, not his opposite in the sense of her being an evil opponent or like her being regressive or actively harmful to the chances of humanity's survival in any way. She's perhaps his alternative in that she is able to reach emotional conclusions that Thomas might never be able to. She contemplates an end to humanity's remaining days on this earth, and even if it's just for a moment, she reaches an acceptance of what peace may exist without people being here. I'd argue she is more open to this outcome than we've ever seen Thomas be. It's even a scenario that we see Thomas describe in the Cartographer's Handbook as an outcome we must take action to avoid, of the Wendigos prowling our graveyards, our churches. Like He specifically invokes that to kind of instill fear in people of the idea of 
our deaths and these mm. vicious entities still like prowling us and almost defiling our graveyards. Whereas Abigail just kind of sees it and is at peace with it almost. Thomas may have a cynical view of people and therefore regularly contemplates the end of human life on this planet, but he's nevertheless feverishly devoted to fighting this outcome with every fibre of his being. Seeing Abigail contemplate and on some level accept this possibility in a similar way I would mark to some of the discussions that were featured in the School of Movies episode 10 Possible Futures opens things up a bit. We don't want to steer into this future, but confronting it in this way makes the way things might turn out more uncertain and consequently feels more honest. It's an interesting conversation to have about Mm -hmm. the things that Abigail shares with Thomas and the things that they differ on, especially in light of the fact that one of the things we are going to be discussing later in this conversation is the revelation that Thomas and Sarah's story have come to an ostensible end, as we knew they would, as we've been alluding to all throughout our conversation with Steamheart. But I would agree overall that there is a way about Abigail that feels more accepting of the world to an extent that is calmer I know that feels like a weird thing to say, the way we have seen Thomas and Abigail represented, but I would argue there is a duality at work with both of them. Thomas tries to impose an order on himself and the world, but we have seen the way he has lost control, and there is turbulent emotion underneath that is anything but the calm that he projects most of the time. Abigail, by contrast, is seen as more impulsive and emotional in her interactions with the world. But then we get moments like this, as well as what we see during her mushroom trip, that suggests a core of something far more still inside. But I'm going to leave that there for now, as we're going to discuss the dichotomies between another set of orderly and chaotic personalities a couple of episodes from now. The complicated thing that's going on is that Abigail would do everything that she could in order to prevent this from happening, much in the same way that we can hear Shepard reflect on in Mass Effect 3, how Mm. the coming of the Reapers potentially spells the doom of all sapient species out there. She's never going to stop fighting, but she also can't obsess over it all Mm. the time. And again, I refer to Shepard as she because... To me, Shepard has always been (laughs) female. I blame the dulcet tones of Jennifer Hale. I just prefer her vocal performance to Mark Mears. Mm. But it's intriguing how I end up relating that experience to what's going on here. They are fighting a war against a seemingly insurmountable foe. And just like in Mass Effect 3, Sometimes it's not the Reapers, sometimes it's having to fight each other over the better way to have to deal with this, because you're having to make the political arrangements with other races, and in the meantime, they're going on to fight the forces of Cerberus, where we're Uh. like, no, 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 we need to be doing it this way instead, 
and we're going to kill a whole bunch of people that don't think like us in order to achieve our better ends because this is the way to save humanity. It's a bit of a mind fuck that the leader of Cerberus, the elusive man, speaks with the voice of Martin Sheen. There is a cognitive dissonance at play, because even though I know Sheen has played other villainous roles, I will always associate him most with President Bartlett, put a penny in the jar. I suspect that he was cast very specifically as the elusive man for this reason. He always sounds so reasonable in parts of Mass Effect 2, even as we see the true rot underneath in the final game. By the same token, it reminds me of how jarring it felt to have Thomas be problematic in the previous chapters, even if his actions are nowhere near as wounding as those of the elusive man. One can definitely tell that Mass Effect left a significant mark on the story that Alex wanted to tell in all of this. Mm. This won't be relevant to the listeners at home. I was almost going to say viewers, but that's antithetical to the point I'm about to make. But I'm going to explain why I was holding my head in my hands for my dear co-host, Greg, who can see me. And the reason is I thought of one particular moment in Mass Effect 2, which I haven't thought about in a long time, but I realized, oh my God, that like we all joked about it and got upset over it and we memed about it, but it's proven, history has proven that it is more real than perhaps anything else that happens in that trilogy. At the start of Mass Effect 2, where you talk to the council after mm-hmm. everything that happened in Mass Effect 1, and the Turian councillor says, ah, oh, yes, Reapers. The council <laughs> has dismissed this claim. And it's like, why did that prove to be exactly how it would go? Mm-hmm. Why? <sighs> Some things just won't change, unfortunately. There is a cyclical nature that certain kinds of behavior are almost predictable. Because we see it again and again, not just in terms of history of civilizations throughout the thousands of years that humans have been around, but even just the things that happen again and again within our own lifetime about Mm -hmm. how people aren't necessarily able to break out of certain modalities, certain paradigms, what's important to them, even in the face of monumental change which show that the old ways of doing things are not going to be equal to what you're dealing with now. We Mm. see that in terms of the growing issues with our state of politics, both here in the U.S., but also in different places around the globe. We see it in the responses to COVID. It's not an exact one-to-one, but the problem is, is that mindsets are so calcified into thinking this is how you deal with these problems, that when circumstances change, it's hard for them to break out of that mindset. There's a bit of a depressing moment to end on. Unfortunately, this was the best place to leave off before we started the next very long topic. I still have at least two episodes left of recorded material to work with, but I'm already late getting this episode out, so I'm going to end it here so I can start working on the next. I pondered leaving you with the calming vibes of the musical piece Vigil, used throughout the Mass Effect series. But the song that doesn't get nearly as much love is the one that plays over the credits of Mass Effect 1. 
complete with appropriate lyrics. So until next time, this is Thoughts with M4 Part 2.